Well, if you would, please open up your Bibles um, to Ephesians chapter 6. We just have two sermons left in uh, the book of Ephesians. So today's second to last one. And we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. If you're going to look in the Pew Bible, that's on page 979 in your Pew Bible. Now, if you look over that passage, uh, you need to know, um, you know, today's Father's Day. And I, I I didn't purposely plan for this passage to be on Father's Day. It actually turns out to be a good passage. If you remember Mother's Day, it was kind of like like sexual immorality. We were kind of stuff. It's like poor moms. All right, but dads. All right, so dads, we're going to look at actually parenting uh, this, this Sunday morning. But also, in addition to parenting, we also see what we're going to look at is um, relationships in the workplace or if you're younger in school. And I need to warn you ahead of time, Paul's going to talk to masters and slaves. And that slave word can throw us off. I'll explain a little more later, but slavery in the Greco-Roman culture is, is not like the slavery that was experienced here in the New World in the 18th and 19th century. It was, it was far different. I'm not saying it was a good thing, but it was far different, and we'll look at that. So, but what we're going to see here is um, Paul is in a section of his writings in, the, in, the, in chapter 6 and 5 and 6 where he is instructing, we saw last time we were together, uh, relationships in marriage, husbands and wives. And today he moves on to um, parents and children and then boss, slaves and masters or, or bosses and employees. And I don't know about you, but um, I'm constantly in need of help and insight from God and how to better relate in my family as well as how to better relate at work. Um, so let's dig in. All right. Ephesians 6 verses 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you that you show us in scripture what is good and what is right. And, and because we're filled with your spirit, we, we receive it, though at times reluctantly. We pray that your spirit would be present upon your people, that your words would come alive to us. Be with me as I speak and explain and preach, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if your Bibles are open, um, or you can just take my word for it, at the end of chapter 5, he is addressing relationships between husbands and wife. And in our passage, he's looking at children and parents and masters and slaves. And it's all in this one concise little section. You need to know that Paul didn't invent this, right? This instruction to husbands and, to husbands and wives and, and parents and child and master and slave, it was something that goes all the way back at least to Aristotle. It's called household codes. In the Greco-Roman culture, 
culture, there were household codes. Household codes were, were directives on how a man should lead his household as it relates to him and his wife and his children and uh, servants that serve in his household. Now, try to place yourself in Ephesus when this letter was first read because it was in a worship service and the letter would have been read and perhaps you know, later times read in little pieces like we've been doing these last weeks. But um, imagine hearing that. You would have been familiar with these household codes. And Paul starts saying, you know, now husbands and wives and, and parents and child, and their ears would have perked up a bit. But, but they would have noticed something distinctly different. Because Paul just doesn't reiterate the Greco-Roman household codes. He, he brings the gospel into them. As you notice in this passage, it's all about Christ and the Lord. And the Lord infuses uh, the relationships between husband and wife and, and parent and child and within the workplace. Or at least it should be that way. So the gospel changes everything. It changes how we see ourselves. We are now children of God. Uh, graciously forgiven for our sins and cleansed of them. God has placed his Holy Spirit in his people so that we receive his instruction in his word and, and we live them out as best as we can in the spirit of the Lord. And so we have been changed. And this gospel reality has changed us and therefore um, we must live it out in our relationships. Now, you know, last time we got together, we looked at marriage and and. Um, you know, husbands and wives. Some of you said it was uh, one, of the, one of the better sermons you heard on that. Uh, thank you for that. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back, but there's, it's, if you want to go listen to, if, to marriage, uh, a sermon on marriage, you can listen online. Today we're going to focus on how the gospel uh, affects our um, family roles and relationships and as well as in our workplaces. So first let's look at the gospel and family relationships. Paul begins with instructions for children and then for parents. But let's take them in reverse order. First, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at the parents. And Paul gives parents both a negative command and a positive command. Do you see that? Was it verse 4, I think? Um, the negative command. Do not, uh, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But, positive command. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's look at both these points. Um, it's interesting that Paul says fathers, right? Because he begins in verse one and he says, you know, children obey your parents. But now when he gets to talking about the parent role, he he hones in on fathers, fathers. He says, uh, you know, fathers do um, not provoke your children to anger. Now, why is he singling out fathers? Well, it's possible because, well, fathers had the household, they had, the buck stops with them, right? That's what Paul's been teaching. But I think I think probably the reason why is, is because typically it's the fathers who are more likely to embitter their children, to be harsh with them, right? Something about men and women, there is a difference, right? Women tend to see below the surface. They, they, they pick up on body language and emotional cues that men are just clueless to, right? Men just want to throw solutions, you know, and get on with their day. Um, women are concerned with, with the process, right? So there is a difference. Men, um, fathers, Paul says, fathers, don't anger your children. My mother is the oldest daughter of, of uh, three girls. All right. She's not a girl anymore. She's grown up. But um, her father was a very successful businessman, but he drove her. He pushed her. And at many times it was just harsh. And my mother, she regularly now, at least once a quarter uh, on the first Tuesday, uh, she, she says, Mark, be careful. You've got three daughters. Don't be harsh. 
Especially with the oldest one. And I need to hear from her. Why? Because I can be a harsh man. I've, I've, I've known that I've said things that, that have hurt my oldest child. Earlier this week, I, I sat down with her. She was going to bed, and I put my hand on her. I, I was like, can you share with me. Is there is anything that comes to mind where I've been hard on you or harsh on you or angered you? And God bless her. She said, no, Dad, I like the way you parent. But I know, I know there's been times when I caused her to cry. I know there's been times when she's run to her mother for comfort, not, for, not to me. So Paul's word to fathers here is, is strong, and we need to listen. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What, is, what does Paul mean with these words? Do not provoke them to anger. What Paul is saying here is, don't make your children perpetually angry. Don't embitter them towards you, to where there's this ongoing reality of hostilities and anger towards you. Now, there's two ways we can make our children perpetually angry. First one is truth without love or over-discipline. It's an abusiveness. It it could be physical, but most likely it's an, an emotional, verbal abuse upon Children. Authors Rogers and Rogers help clarify what Paul is getting at here. Here's what they write. Listen closely. He said that they say the term translated provoke to anger refers to attitudes, words, and actions that would drive a child to angry exasperation or resentment. And then they go things such as excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abusive authority arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. My friends, all of these things will anger your child perpetually. You can even be trying to instill good things in your child, you know, uh, but if there's no love behind your instruction, it will embitter them and cause them to be angry. Truth without love. When you over-discipline a child, they will become perpetually angry. This is what truth without love will do. Now, there's another approach, maybe you picked up on it, that will just as easily perpetually anger your child. What is it? It's under-discipline or love without discipline. I put love in quotes because the Bible shows us that those who truly love their children discipline them. We see it in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 6. We see, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then it goes on to say, if you're left without discipline, then you're illegitimate children, not really sons or daughters of God. So discipline and love go together. But there are those who love without discipline. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you shy away from disciplining your child. Perhaps you regularly spoil or indulge your your child. Uh, Guess what? They will grow up angry too. That little child who stomps their feet and seems to get their way as you give in. And that little little child who keeps testing his parents or she testing her parents at every turn will grow up into an adolescent whose the world revolves around them and their wishes and their whims. And they will end up being perpetually angry. How so? Because when the, when the child finally leaves the pandering parents, they end up going out into the real world, and they find out that people in the real world aren't as compliant to their demands as you were. And it causes them to be angry at society, at people, at their uh, at relationships, right? 
So, over-discipline and under-discipline will provoke a child to perpetual anger. Discipline without love and, and love without discipline will provoke your child. But then Paul does give us a positive command. And what does he show us? What is the proper way parents are to raise up their children? Well, it's love with discipline. Or you could flip the words, discipline with love. And it's, as we see here, this is the way the Lord disciplines. At the end of verse 4, we see that there's discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's not just the Lord's teaching. This is the way in which the Lord disciplined. Do you remember when Jesus was about to die and he's sharing with his disciples what's going to go on? And um, he says that Peter is going to deny him. And what does Peter say? Peter says, no way, Jesus, not me. All these other schmucks, they're going to deny you, but I never will. And then Jesus is arrested and he's taken away. Um, Jesus went to the cross knowing that Peter was going to deny him. Jesus went to the cross to, to redeem in, 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 uh, Peter for, for his sins. And this is the, this first aspect of disciplining with love or loving uh, discipline is what we see with Jesus here, which is forbearance, right? What is forbearance? Forbearance is that godly virtue of patient endurance and self-control, wherein you abstain from, from exercising your rights. This is how the Lord treated his disciples. This is how God treats you and me. This is how God is. Paul writes in the book of Romans, he, in chapter 3, he says that, that God, in divine forbearance, passed over the sins of the Old Testament people until the time that Jesus came and could properly pay for their sins. God is a forbearing God. Now, parents, wouldn't it be great if you could tell your child when they're eight years old, uh, just one time, hey, kids, uh, after dinner, you pick up your dishes and you take them and rinse them off and put them in the dishwasher. Wouldn't it be just great if you told them once and they did that all the way until they left for college? That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Guess what? You and I wouldn't even do that, let alone them, right? It's not even part of our nature um, to do the right things all the time. God is constantly forbearing with us. So too, parents, we are to be forbearing with our children, to be patient with them, not exercising the right of authority and dominance over them, but to be forbearing with their shortcomings. Also, though, the other thing we need to see is that the Lord is instructive with us. We must instruct our children. Once again, Peter and Jesus. So, Jesus is arrested, and the, Peter's there, and the rooster crows three times, or excuse me, he denies him three times, and the rooster crows. And Jesus looks at Peter with just a glance. Peter remembered, and Peter wept, and he wailed in shame. It was just a look wherein the Lord instructed Peter, Peter, your pridefulness, I see it, right? Just a word, uh, uh, just a glance. Uh, our problem is that we need more than just a glance. And parents, we don't not just supposed to glance at our kids. Not, and my kids say that I've got the I've got the look. I've got this one look with I guess the eye, where without saying a word, they know they maybe need to you know sit up straight or who knows what. So uh, their parents, I don't know. Anyway, maybe they need to videotape it for me. But supposedly I've got the eye. But you know we we need to we need more than just 
looks in instructing our children. We must instruct them with God's word. Parents, one of the greatest advice I received, I received before I was even a parent, I was a youth pastor at a church in St. Louis, and a mentor of mine said to me, he said, Mark, you're going to have to discipline these youth. And when you do so, you must make sure, or try to make sure, that it's not you disciplining them, but rather that you, you are disciplining them in the Lord. You are pointing them to an authority above and beyond you, God in heaven, right? Otherwise, it's just me and my, me and my moral instruction, and they can easily reject that. Say, for instance, you catch a, a child in a lie, and the, the, perhaps the wrong way would be a moralistic way of saying, you lied, I know, I caught you, lying's bad, don't you ever lie again, right? That's you against them. But when you instruct in the Lord and you point them out in God's word, uh, it takes on a whole different way. It, it allows you to say, you know what, I know you've lied, and it, and it grieves my heart, but even more so, it grieves your Father in heaven's heart, He's given us good instruction that we're not to lie. We're, we're not to bear false witness, which in many ways can be lying. And, and, and our Lord went to the cross because of false witness. People accused him wrongly. They lied about him. But on the cross, he pays for our sins, even our sin of lying. Isn't that wonderful? You see what I did there? I'm taking it beyond me. It's not Mark disciplining my child. It's, it's God's word. And, and, and his word is far much better than my words many times. All right. You see that, parents? But we need to do this not just when we're correcting our kids, right? We need to do it when we're encouraging them and when we're comforting them. Recently, one of my child has a, one of my children has um, a, a lot of pain, physical pain, and, and it's happened just yesterday. And um, I was able to take her. I said, you know what? It, it saddens my heart that you're feeling this pain, and also it saddens God's heart that you're going through this. And you know what God's word says. God's word says, cast your cares upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Do you want me to pray for you right now? See what I was doing? It's not just me comforting them. It's God comforting my child through me. That's the picture that our kids need to see is is that we are under a heavenly father. And as we parent, we parent as Christ would parent our heavenly father parents. So we forbear with our children, we instruct our children, and lastly, we restore our children. Our Heavenly Father restores us in every sin that we've committed through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, too, we must um, not let our children become mired in their shortcomings and in their guilt and in their shame. We must restore them. Do you remember how this, one last look back at Peter and Jesus? Do you remember how it worked out for Peter and Jesus? Well, Jesus died on the cross. In a later time, he gathers his disciples and they, they share a meal. And Jesus says to Peter three times, do you love me? Each time he asks him, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I love you. And then Jesus said what? He said, well, um, tend to, uh, feed my sheep, tend to my lambs. Three times. Why three times? Because Peter denied Jesus three times. And for each time that that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus restored him. Of course I love you, Jesus. Well, feed my sheep, tend to my lambs. He's saying, you've been forgiven. Now go out and, and live as a redeemed, forgiven, restored person. Serve in the kingdom. Parents, we are to... Restore our children. 
not let them wallow in their guilt and their shame, or to point them to the cross and to a, a Savior whose forgiveness is eternal and covers all of their sins, that they may rejoice in the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. Tell them, I forgive you. Tell them even more so, God forgives you through His Son. So parents, we're to forbear with our children. We're to instill godly instruction. And we're to restore our children. Now, before we move to the next point, there's one, one other point here, and that is this. Parents, here's what I hope you're not seeing here. I hope, what I hope you can understand is, is what is the goal of Christian parenting? The goal of Christian parenting isn't to have a well-behaved kid who you can take out in public, and everyone goes, wow, what well-behaved kids. What good-looking kids. The goal of Christian parenting isn't to get them in, your kids into the best school so they can have a great job. What is the goal of Christian parenting? It's to show them the Lord, that they may come to know the Lord. That's your ultimate goal. Everything else settles in somewhere underneath that. And parents, this is your job. It's not the churches. I think we do a great job in our children's ministry, but dads, moms, this is your job. This is your role. Instruct your children. Raise them up. Discipline and love. Now for the children. All right, kids. Um, What does Paul say the child's relationship in the family is? Well, he begins in verse 1. He says, children, obey your parents. And, of course, kids say, why? Well, then he says a little further on, he says, for this is right. All right. I don't know about you, but most kids don't like that. It kind of like sounds like because dad says so, you know, right? Um, but thankfully, it, well, it is right. It is right to obey your parents. But he, Paul also gives us some insight as to um, why obedience is good. And here's what he shows us. He says the gospel gives you, child, the gospel gives you what you want, what you need, as well as a reward. Right? That sounds pretty cool. What are you talking about, Mark? All right, how does this happen? Well, the first one's kind of hard to see. He gives you what you want. If you were to go back and place yourself in the first reading of this letter in that congregation, there was parents and children, slaves and masters, all kinds of people gathered worshiping Jesus, and everyone's ears would have perked up. Because in the traditional Greco-Roman household codes, children were not addressed directly. They were addressed in the third person. But here Paul is saying, you, children. What is he? He's addressing them as, as people in the, house, in the house of God worshiping. Paul acknowledges that within the body of Christ, there are spirit-filled believers who love Christ who are not adults yet. Does that surprise you? Of course, it, it shouldn't surprise us. And Paul doesn't treat them as a lot of adults do, as second-class citizens within the body. What does he do? He speaks directly to the children in the congregation. He's speaking to spirit-filled believers, and he believes that they're fully capable of listening to the instruction and growing and learning. And the body of Christ is for children. Remember when Jesus was teaching and and, his, and um, some kids come up to him. Maybe one of them had a runny nose or something, all dirty. And, you know, they're laughing and giggling. And, and he comes on up and the disciples are like, you know, get away, Amstray, get out of here. You know, this is the Messiah. What are you doing bothering him for, you know? And Jesus rebuked his disciples. He said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is for children such as these. Kids here this morning, I hope you hear this. Um, you are 
part of the body of Christ. You are treasured and valued by Christ himself. You're an important part of this body. If you love Christ, you belong to him and to his body. What does this mean practically? Well, it means that you don't wait until you're an adult to live your life of faith. It means that here and now, as you're filled with the Holy Spirit, as you belong to Christ, you are able to live for Christ. Pleasing him in how you act and obey and live and honor him. And where's the primary place you get to live this out? I know a lot of times you probably think, well, school. Well, certainly you get to live out your faith in school. But the primary place where you begin to live out your faith is in the home. So Paul says, you know, that the wonderful thing, what we want to know is that, that your, your, your status as a child in the household of your own home is, is that of a child of God. Your full status of, of a believer. You are valuable. You are capable. You are responsible. In addition to this, he tells the children what they need to hear, too. And we see that in verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Paul is speaking to children who are spirit-filled, calling them to understand this instruction to obey their parents. Now, always obey? We are to always obey our parents? Kids perking up the ears there. Um, yes and no. You know, did you notice that this is that Paul says in the Lord? You know, we're to obey our parents in the Lord. Now, this isn't saying obey your Christian parents because they're in the Lord. No, the, the preposition modifies the word obey. Obey in the Lord your parents. And there may be times when your parents call you to do something that is against God's word or is unholy. Uh, guess what? You, you don't need to obey them then. I'm amazed at how many, I see it in the news, there's always like some mom takes her kids shoplifting, right? You know, I'm like, really? Are you going to take your kids shoplifting? All right. Uh, not a good idea. Kids, listen to your pastor. If your parents want to take you shoplifting, you say no. All right? Okay. All right. No, mom, we're not doing that. We can work and buy our stuff. Okay? All right. <clears throat> but Paul means more than this when he says obey in the Lord. What we need to understand, children, is your obedience pleases the Lord. I mean, look at it. Jesus himself was, is, was and is the Son of God who walked in flesh on earth. Every moment of his life, he lived in obedience to his heavenly Father. Even at the moment in which he cried out to his Father in heaven, said, Dad, can you, do I have to go to the cross? Can you take away this cup? He said, but, but not my will, your will be done. Jesus was an obedient Son. And so every time you're obedient, it's pleasing to Christ and to to our Father in heaven. Ultimately, also, obedience is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. To be obedient is hard. All right, just ask your parents. All right, walking in the Lord in obedience is hard. We need the Spirit of God in us. And, and young children, you need to know this truth is this: is that your parents, your parents are sinners, and they have and will continue to fall short. And how they parent you. They will let you down. Not that they want to. They want to parent you well. They want to raise you up in, um, in, in, in truth and in love. But they will fail you. But understand this. Your, your parents' failure to perfectly parent you is not an excuse to disobey them. Rather, what is it then? It's an opportunity for you to love them as the Lord has loved you, 
to show your parents the unconditional love of, of God and to also walk in obedience as Christ has walked. It's hard. We need the Holy Spirit to do this. Lastly, for kids, there's, there's a reward for your obedience. You like that? There's a reward? What's the reward? Well, we see it. Check out um, in verse 2, Paul quotes the fifth commandment. And he says, parenthetically, and this commandment has a promise. It's the first one with a promise. Honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. I had friends in high school who got away with everything. Their parents were a bit lenient. And even when their parents did lay down the law, they were quick to disobey. Two of them died at a young age. Not of natural causes. And as I've been thinking throughout this week of my friends from high school who, who experienced that type of family life, I, I look back and I can honestly say, I can't pick a single one whose life right now is flourishing. There's some truth to what Paul is saying here. Obedience leads to reward. A reward that it goes well with you. Why would that be? Well, if you're an obedient child, you've learned humility and submission and and how to turn the other cheek and how to trust. Those are qualities that go far in this world. You've learned how to to submit in, in the workplace or in school. You become a better student or a better employee. So it shouldn't surprise us that when you're obedient as a child at a young age, it works into a a long and prosperous life. It's no guarantee, right? It's no guarantee, but that's the principle that Paul is getting at here. All right, now for the gospel and work. It's going to go a little bit quicker. Let me address this issue with slaves. We hear this word slave and our ears perk up. And, you know, we start immediately thinking of something that took place in in the New World, 18th, 19th century, something that was an abominable, something to which Christians fought uh, for, against, um, abolition of slavery. We need to understand that what took place in the Greco-Roman world back then, slavery, although it's not uh, something to be uh, commended or condoned, it is really totally different than slavery in, in the Americas. First, slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race, nor was it for a lifetime. Most slaves, many of them sold themselves into slavery. Most of them bought their way out or were declared Roman citizens by the age of 30. Slaves did not have a separate social class. Their social class was tied to their master's social class. Education was not withheld from slaves. In fact, some slaves were more educated than their um, masters. They were allowed to own property, including other slaves. Some slaves worked in menial tasks and worked in mines and in fields, but others were doctors and teachers, um, even sea captains. Many slaves actually sold themselves into bondage. They became indentured servants. Roughly 30% of the population of Greece and of Italy in Paul's day were indentured servants, were slaves who'd sold themselves into bondage. to, To do so was common. Why? Because it was a way of guaranteeing employment and food and and, and reliable work conditions. It was not ideal, but it's totally different, you see, than than what took place in um, the New World in the 18th and 19th century. So, all that said, can we look at boss and employees now um, as opposed to masters and slaves? And what we need to see is that the gospel brings a radical departure 
to our relationships in the workplace or if you're a student in, this, in schools. What I want us to see first is that work is not a four-letter word. It is a divine calling. And secondly, that work is divinely pleasing. All right, first, work is a divine calling. Once again, Paul turns these Greco-Roman household whole codes on their heads. Not only does Paul direct children, uh, address children directly, but he talks directly to the slaves in the congregation. Please try to understand how radical this would have been in that day. Slaves didn't have a voice. Slaves were property. Uh, the, the household code spoke to masters and how they were to treat their slaves. And yes, there was good treatment. They're supposed to treat them well. But it always mentioned them in the third person. Paul is speaking to them directly. They are in the congregation, right? There are slaves and masters worshiping Jesus side by side. This shows us that the gospel is non-discriminatory. Paul wrote elsewhere that, that in Christ Jesus, there, there is you know, neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel brings about a radical equality in humanity. Not that there aren't differences in our roles, but we are equal. Paul is telling them, even though you have menial jobs, you're able to work at them wholeheartedly as to unto the Lord. All work, whether you're low on the pecking order or high on the pecking order, is divine work. Now, do you see it that way? Here's a good exercise to see how you understand work. Say we're, out, we're to go out for coffee, all right? Uh, that, it's a lot of you, it might take a few weeks. But if we were to have coffee, me and you, one-on-one, we're to hanging out, we're talking about all kinds of cool things. And then what if I were to turn to you and say, if you could do anything to serve the Lord, I mean, really, really serve him, like you're on fire for God, what would you do? Now, when you hear that question, what pops in your head? For a lot of people, they think I'm saying, would you go into full-time ministry? Would you become a missionary? And if that was your knee-jerk reaction to that question, guess what? You don't have a biblical understanding of work. All work is a divine calling, not just the preacher or the missionary. But often Christians don't see it that way. We need a biblical understanding of work. Paul is speaking to domestic servants here, people who push brooms and cook meals and clean homes. And he's telling them that they are actually serving God in their work. Now, we have a good number of members and regular attenders of Grace Church who are domestic employees. They haven't sold themselves into slavery, but they work at a large estates out here and they cook and they clean and they oversee the property. A number of them aren't here today because it's summer in the Hamptons. And so uh, they have to, you know, have the Sabbath on a different day. Paul's point is to all of us who work, whether in the home or outside of the home. And let me, let me tell you, to work in a home as a, as a, house, uh, as a housemaker, or, or, um, you know, that's, that's divine calling. That's a divine work. No matter where you work. It's divine. If you look back into Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning, what do we see? We see God working. God is working hard, right? He's creating the whole universe. God is a God who works. He rests one day of the week. This is before the fall. God creates, God is taking chaos. And what does he do? He makes order out of it. Tell me that's not a homemaker, right? Chaos in the home. Uh, make order out of it. 
This is divine work, all right? Adam and Eve. They were called to rule over creation, to increase and multiply, fill the whole earth, leave the garden at some point. For now, tend to the garden, go outside, have families, grow, have culture, have a society. Within society, there's going to be those in authority and those who aren't. There's going to be those who own the musical instrument factory. And there's going to be those who work at the musical instrument factory. There's going to be those who drive the trucks, right? Even before the fall, all work is good even after the fall. Uh, What do we see? We see families that make musical instruments at the very beginning of Genesis. Martin Luther helps us to see this commandment in the Lord's Prayer. In his large catechism, he says, when you pray for daily bread, you pray for everything that is necessary to enjoy daily bread. When we pray for daily bread, we're not praying for God to miraculously drop bread in our laps, right? We're not praying for that. We pray for, for bread, and God feeds us how? Through the dutiful work of others. The farmer grows the grain. The commodity trader ensures a fair market price for the grain. The truck driver delivers the grain. The workers at the bread factory, they bake the bread and they package the bread. The grocery store workers display the bread on the shelves for you. They ring you out as you leave. The employees at the debit card company provide you with the services you need so you can run your debit card and buy the bread. All these people doing seemingly menial jobs are doing God's work of providing you your daily bread. Do you see it that way? There's no such thing as unimportant work. Now, if this is true, then there's some application for us. It means that we must not look down on people who retrieve grocery carts, who who valet park your vehicle, who drive the jitney bus. All work is valuable work in God's eyes. We must not look down on them or feel superior to them. If you do that, it shows that you do not have a biblical understanding of work. It also means that if you have a job that is boring, say you expedite payroll. I'm not even sure what that is, but say you expedite payroll. Um, you need to know that your work is important. All work is important to God. And so because of this, Paul writes in verse 5, that you are to serve your boss with respect and wholeheartedly as you would Christ. When you're serving your earthly boss, you're really serving Christ in heaven. And he describes how it isn't to be done. He says, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers. We've all worked with people or we go to school with people who are, um, when the boss is around, they're always doing the right thing. So the boss sees them and they're kissing up to the boss. And then when the boss is gone, they go back to mediocre service. Paul says, no, uh, no kissing up to the boss, um, no eye service. He says we're to work as servants of Christ. Which means we need to see our service, whatever you do. Whether you've got a job where you're like, my job is amazing. Or whether you're like, my job just seems so repetitive. Ultimately, though you have an earthly boss who may or may not be a good boss, you have a heavenly boss that you are actually serving. So how does that change how you perform? Well, it means that you serve, as Paul says, wholeheartedly. That means that you serve to, to please your, your, heaven, uh, your, your heavenly master uh, and you do good work on earth. You don't cut corners. Uh, You do things with integrity. You put in a full day's work. Show up on time. You do your best. You set an example for others.
Ultimately, when you do that, you're serving Christ. Paul writes in verse 7 that you render service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. And he says there's a reward for that. Have you ever been in a work situation where you just put in hard work all the time and it goes unappreciated? Or worse, you get ridiculed or mocked or demeaned or yelled at? See what Paul says in verse 8? He says that Christ will reward you, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. Even if your incompetent boss doesn't see your good service, your Heavenly Father will. Christ sees it, and he will reward you, either in this lifetime or in the age to come. Now, quick word for bosses. In this congregation, there were both slaves and free men and women. And, and Paul turns the, the household codes upside down for the bosses, too, for the masters as well. He said something shocking. He, he turns to the masters and he says, Masters, do the same to them. What are you talking about? I've got I to gotta live like the slave does? I've, I've got to honor, uh, I've got to work in such a way that, that honors the Lord as the slaves do? Well, yes. Like the slave who renders his service ultimately to the Lord, so too you. If you're a boss, your, your work on earth is really meant to be honoring to the Lord in all that you do. Your, your job is to please your Heavenly Father and to relate to your employees in such a way that they get a glimpse of God in heaven through you. A lot of people go to church on Sunday when they have this religious life, and then they go to work, and it's like, well, it's all business, it's all secular, I've got to act like a secular person in, in order to do my job well. Well, that's not true. Paul says otherwise. He says here, stop your threatening. Well, I don't threaten anybody. Well, he's just giving an example. But a lot of bosses, a lot of masters, they threaten their slaves. And it's true today. I mean, there's a lot of workplaces where, where employees are threatened. It's not as if you're a slave, but you're treated as personal property. Yelled at, hounded, you know, told to stay late. All these kind of things. You do need to stay late every now and then. All right. Um, recent Gallup poll of one million workers found that bad bosses are the number one reason people quit their jobs. And when the person quits, the bad boss blames it on the employee. He or she, it's her fault, never looking at themselves to see changes they need to make. Paul's saying, no, boss, you need to stop. Stop threatening. Honor your Father in Heaven as you lead in the workplace. Paul could offer a secular motivation, right? Hey, if you're a nice boss, uh, they'll be more productive and uh, they will be more profitable. And it's true. Another Gallup poll found that unhealthily managed work groups are on average 50% less productive and 44% less profitable than more positively managed groups. But Paul doesn't go to productivity and, and uh, as, as a motivator, does he? What does he do? He says, he says to them, he says, you both share the same master in heaven. You both have the same heavenly father, whether you are high on the totem pole or low on the totem pole. You serve the same master. And what does he say about our master in heaven? He shows no partiality. When Christ returns, when God establishes his kingdom fully on earth, those who have had 
well-esteemed jobs on earth, who are Christians, and those who have clean toilets on earth, will worship together in perfect equality. We must see that. If you are a business owner, you manage people, whatever it is, even if they're not Christians, uh, you serve a master in heaven who is impartial. He treats everybody with the same amount of love and grace and mercy as he's treated you. Paul's point is, be that way with your employees. Earlier, Grayson read an account of the disciples. They were scheming when the kingdom comes. I want to be on your right. I want to be on your left. I want a position of authority and status. I want people to look up to me. I want to rule a lot of people. All right? Remember what Jesus did? I hope you did. We just read it just a few minutes ago. But um, what does he say? He says, he says, the way of the kingdom is upside down, inside out. That's not how it's to be for you. The rulers on the earth, they lord over people, but not so you. And he says, whoever would be great among you, you want to be high up? What does he say? Must be your servant. And then he takes, if you want to be first, you want to be first in the kingdom? Well, you must become a slave. And then he takes us where you and I can never go. And and Jesus says, just as the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What we see in Christ is a life-giving, sacrificing Savior who pours out himself to serve others. Christian, that's your example. Whether you're a boss or an employee, a parent or a child, a husband or a wife, this sacrificial love of Christ, uh, pouring, turning himself inside out so that you may have status of forgiven sons and daughters. That's what you have received. The kingdom's upside down. I hope you see that, that here that Paul has taken these household codes, which were fairly secular and practical, and he's turned them inside out, upside down, as he's brought Christ into them. Christ is everywhere present in how we relate with husband and wife and, and uh, parents and children and boss and employee. Daily we need to remind ourselves that this is what Christ has done for us. He's given his life for us. That we may live for him now in all of our relationships. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is powerful. It's penetrating. Thank you that your spirit gives life to it. We pray that you would be continue to be forbearing with us, that you would continue to be patient with your children, because we're slow. We're slow to learn. We often reject your instruction. We pray today, though, that we would walk in the wisdom of this truth that we've studied, that we would love well, that we would relate others well, and that we would serve others, uh, not to be served, but we would give our life that others may know you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.